Thank you so much, Dan and choir and instrumentalists for our beautiful worship today. We continue our sermon series from Samuel. If you'll turn to 2 Samuel chapter 18, and we'll look at various passages in just a moment. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son? I see it in your eyes, too. Eyes that so show suffering and disappointment because a child has gone wayward, disappointed you. David's utterance in verse 33 is tragic and heartrending. Words that come because David has been estranged from his favorite son, Absalom, and now Absalom has died. The pain is in our eyes, too. It's a quiver in our voice as well. Our children, our grandchildren have sometimes failed to be all that we wanted them to be. It hurts. It's puzzling. How could things possibly go so wrong when they were infants? That first toddling step promises another series of steps all in the right direction. We have the greatest dreams in the world for our children and grandchildren. And then somewhere along the way, the plan is abandoned. The path is deserted. And just like the prodigal son, they run off. Our daughters run off. They run to a far country. They run away physically and emotionally and spiritually. And they're beyond our reach, beyond the reach they think of our God and our church. David, of course, by the time we get to 2 Samuel 18, is well acquainted with death. Why, he had made friends with disappointment a long time ago, hadn't he? Why, he had even experienced murder. But perhaps the intensity of the pain was never as great as it was this moment when he learns that his general Joab has murdered his favorite son. It's hard for us to stomach that God's people are not immune from suffering, that we struggle in our families, we struggle in the workplace, we struggle in our marriages, we struggle with our children just like we did before we ever called Jesus Lord. We do, don't we? We live in a broken world. It is broken by sin, and sometimes our suffering is related to our sin, and sometimes it's related to somebody else's sin, and sometimes it's related all the way back to Adam's sin and has nothing to do with us or ours, but we live in the broken equation of sin, don't we? Our dwelling place isn't a garden anymore. It all begins back in chapter 13 when Absalom was David's favorite son. In fact, chapter 14, 25 says, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, he was perfect, Absalom. From the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, he was the perfect boy to David. He had a sister, you remember, from our last sermon, who was beautiful too, Tamar. 
Amnon, the half-brother of Absalom and Tamar, began to lust after his own half-sister. He pretended to be ill, and he called Tamar. David assigned her to take care of her half-brother. And you remember, he was stronger than she, and he prevailed upon her. And she said, don't do this to me. This violation should never happen in Israel. But he was stronger, and he had his own way with his half-sister. On the side, I say this morning that Tamar's pain is the pain of many more than we ever are willing to admit. And I want to say something to the Amnons of the world this morning who abuse the children in your family or your friends' children. As one who ends up seeing the travesty and the damage and the wake that you leave behind for that moment to fulfill your base desire, you are ruining a life for someone else. And to the Tamars of the world, I say, those abused, it's not your fault any more than it was Tamar's fault. And with the grace of God, you can move on and move forward and begin healing and restoring process in your life. Absalom was angry at Amnon for what he had done to his sister, but Absalom was quiet for two years. He didn't speak to his half-brother Amnon, neither well nor ill. No words. And then it was sheep shearing time, and Absalom said to his father, David, let's all go together and let's shear the sheep. And David said, I'm not going. Amnon said, I'll go with you. That's exactly what Absalom wanted. Well, sheep shearing time, there's a lot of work, but there's a lot of drinking too. And Absalom gave the word to his men, when I give you the motion, when I give you the signal, you go and you murder Amnon. And don't you worry about it. It's my decision. You obey my command. They shear the sheep. They get drunk. Absalom gives the signal. The men go and murder Amnon. All the sons of David flee. It is chaos. There is murder in the royal family. You remember. David should have handled Amnon a long time ago, but he did not. He swept the sexual abuse under the rug like a lot of people do today. Just if you pretend hard enough and long enough, it'll go away. It did not then. It will not now. Absalom has to flee. He's gotten revenge for the treatment of Tamar, but now he has to run from his father, David. He is away, you remember, for three years, and then Joab gets a woman from Tekoa. She's an actress. Go and tell David a story. So she does. She comes to David as he's hearing the cases for the day, and she makes the plea. I have two boys. I'm a widow. I don't have a husband. And my boys were out in the field, and you know how boys will scuffle, and they started scuffling with each other, and there wasn't anyone there to separate them, and the stronger son killed the weaker son, and, and now my family wants me to hand over the murderer, and if he's murdered, then I'll have no one to carry forth the family name. I won't have anyone to care for me. What shall I do, O king? David says... I see your point. Two wrongs don't make a right. There's no, re no need to kill your remaining son. No one will touch a hair on his head. The woman draws back and says, then why are you doing what you're doing, David? You have one son who's killed the other son. This story's not about me. It's about you. And Nathan-like style, she turns and she accuses 
So David knows what he has to do. The story that he's pronounced judgment on is not her story, it's his story. And so he invites Absalom to come home to Jerusalem, but not fully. You remember how our, our last sermon ended in, in chapter 14 and verse 33 that David kissed Absalom, they embraced. For a while he let him come back to Jerusalem, but for two years he said, you stay at your house, I'll stay at my house, we'll have no contact, we'll have no conversation. Then finally at the end of chapter 14, they kiss and they embrace. But chapter 15, Absalom continues to conspire against his dad, David. Now, you remember Absalom's personality. He is patient. He is a plotter. He is a planner. He broods and he plans vengeance. He's still angry at his father for ignoring him for those years. And so four years, he builds a coalition against his father. He wakes up really early while his father is yet asleep. He stands at the gate when people line up to hear the judgment of the King David. Absalom says, well, well, tell me your case. Let me tell you what I would do. Oh, I don't know what my dad's going to do, but you know, if I were the king, I would go your way with this decision. This case is clear. You're in the right, he's in the wrong. Why, if I were, if I were king, the judgment would go for you. And then the other side of the case would come along in a little bit, and he would say to them, oh, if I were king, I would go with you. For four years, he stood, and he shook hands. And remember how handsome he was, perfect from head to toe. He stood there at the gates while David was still asleep, working the crowd and gaining the hearts of the people. Oh, if, if I were just judge over Israel, if I were the king, you and I would be friends. And I sat on the throne. Look at chapter 15 and verse 6. It, it finally happens in 15, 6. The last part of that verse. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. The time came, the fruit was ripe, it was harvest time. The messenger comes to David and says, the hearts of the men of Israel have switched over to Absalom and David had to run. He had to run away from the palace and run away from his wives and run away from the throne and Absalom declares himself king of Israel. Sets himself up in his father's royal palace. And there's David back in the wilderness again, this time not running from Saul, but running from his son, Absalom. And David now is an older man. As it sometimes does, this morning I want you to see ways in which suffering brought out the best in David. Sometimes suffering brings out the very best in us as well, doesn't it? Even as David was refusing intimacy with Absalom, he was refusing intimacy with God. He no longer prayed to God in those days. Jesus said the same thing, didn't he? He said, you can't have prolonged anger with your brother and at the same time love your God. It just can't happen. 
We cannot love God whom we have not seen at the same time, hate our brother whom we have seen. Losing intimacy with God, it was spiritually dry for David until Absalom, until the suffering. First thing I want you to see this morning, as suffering in David's life brought humility to David, the suffering brought humility to David. Turn over to chapter 16 of this passage. Chapter 16. Let's look at verse 5. When King David came to Bahurim, behold, there came out from there a man whose family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And he came cursing continually as he came. And he threw stones at David. And all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were at his right hand and at his left. But Shimei said, he cursed, get out, get out, you man of bloodshed, you worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul and whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil for you're a man of bloodshed. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go now and cut off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, O sons of Zariah? If he curses, and if the Lord has told him, Curse David, then who shall say, Why have you done so? Then David said to Abishai and to his servants, Behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him. Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of cursing this day. What a scene. This is King David. He's on the run, as I've imagined the passage in my own mind. Shimei is up a little bit higher on the hillside, walking a path above. And here's David and the remnants of his army. And they're escaping because Absalom has taken the holy city. And Shimei is up there. And he starts throwing rocks at the king. And he begins to curse him. And he says, you got what you deserved. The way you treated Saul's family, this is what you had coming. And of course, you remember, David never did any wrong to Saul. He didn't. He throws the stones at him, begins to curse him, and David's men say, he's a dog. Let me go up there and take his head off his shoulders. No one talks to my king that way. And David said, no. How do you know God hadn't told him to curse me? Maybe he is the mouthpiece and the messenger of the Almighty. You leave him alone. Let him say what he has to say. And maybe instead of this curse, maybe God will bless me. Just maybe. I want you to notice that in his humble state, that David doesn't even plead his innocence to Shimei. Rather, he pleads his submission to Yahweh. David does not argue his case. He really had done Saul no wrong. He had been best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. He had never, ever, even when he had a chance, laid one finger on Saul. He had merely cut the edge of his robe a couple of times. You remember those stories. But he does not say, I'm an innocent man. I did nothing to Saul. I knew he was God's anointed. Rather, in humility, David, who hadn't had humility in a long time as a king, 
submitted himself to Yahweh and said, who knows, he may be speaking for God. I will simply humble myself and see what God has to say. Perhaps, 1612, the Lord will look upon my affliction and return good to me instead of cursing this day. You know, sometimes we think we're on the top of the world. We haven't had any suffering in our life in a long time, and we think that it's because of who we are, and we begin to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And then there's the medical test or the wayward child or the broken relationship or the downturn in our industry or all the things that make us uncertain and then all of a sudden in humbleness we are submissive to Yahweh yet again. Don't ever be David in the palace. Always be David on the run. Submissive to Yahweh. There's a second thing I want you to see this morning. David learns to pray again through his suffering. David learns to pray again. In chapter 15 and verse 31 at the end he says, O Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. David learns to pray again. He had stopped praying to God and was only talking to Ahithophel. Now, Ahithophel was the wisest counselor in all the land. In fact, in chapter 16 and verse 23, it basically says, if you speak to Ahithophel, you think you've spoken to God. That's how wise that he was. So David had no need for counsel with Yahweh anymore. He simply spoke to Ahithophel, and Ahithophel told him what to do. But now here's the problem. Ahithophel's turncoat. He's gone with Absalom. All the smart money was on the boy and not the daddy, David. And Ahithophel is wise. He is smart. And so he changes sides. He is a turncoat. And the word comes to David that Ahithophel is on the other side. David can't talk to Ahithophel anymore. Now he has to go back and learn to pray. Now he has to learn to speak with Yahweh once again. Don't turn to it for time's sake, but in Psalm 55, he might be praying about this very thing when his key advisor Ahithophel changes camps. Listen to his prayer in Psalm 55. David says, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We had sweet fellowship together. We walked in the house of God, in the throng. He has put forth his hands against those who were at peace with him. He has violated his covenant his speech was smoother than butter. His heart was at war. His words were softer than oil, and yet there were drawn swords. Can't trust Ahithophel anymore. My friend has become my enemy. This is my best friend, my friend of all friends, David says. I've been charmed by his speech. It was like oil. 
but now I'm stabbed in the back. Or again, don't turn to it for time's sake, but in Psalm 3, it is often thought that this psalm relates to the time when David is fleeing from Jerusalem because of the uprising by Absalom. Listen to David in Psalm 3. Yahweh, look, enemies past counting. Enemies are sprouting like mushrooms. Mobs of them all around me, roaring their mockery. Ha, no help for him from God. But you, Yahweh, shield me from all sides. You ground my feet. You lift my head up high. With all my might, I shall shout up to Yahweh. He answers thunder from the holy mountain. I will stretch myself out. I will sleep. I will get up rested, tall and steady, fearless even before the mobs coming at me from all sides. Up, Yahweh. Oh, my God, help me. Slap their faces. Punch them in the teeth. Real help comes from Yahweh. Your blessing clothes your people. David knows how to pray again, doesn't he? Wow. He has intimacy with God. He'd been talking too much to Ahithophel, and Ahithophel is turncoat, and now he has to turn to Yahweh. And in the rawness of the old-time prayers of David, we have Song 3. Suffering taught David, and suffering teaches me, and it teaches you how to pray again. It's always true, isn't it? In the midst of suffering, didn't Job have countless conversations with God? Doesn't Paul cry out about the thorn in his flesh? And doesn't our Lord himself in the garden of Gethsemane in that earnestness pray, let the cup pass, but if not, we'll do it your way. Suffering brings David to humility. But secondly, suffering teaches the king how to pray again. Maybe you're here this morning and you have newfound suffering, or maybe it's an old wound rubbed raw again. In the midst of that suffering, you are learning the raw language of prayer that David utters in the Psalter, speaking directly, unhindered. In our case, through Christ to Yahweh. Here's a third and final thing I want you to see. In the suffering, David rediscovers compassion. In his suffering, David rediscovers compassion. Have you ever noticed in your own life, after you go through a hard time or suffering, how you have new compassion with others who suffer? You ever notice how it changes your personality when you have to walk with a limp, when you see someone else? who's bearing the burden of a limp. Finally, David learns compassion. Old military skills had to be warmed up again. He had to wander and war in the wilderness yet again. But notice what he says. Turn to chapter 18 now in verse 5. Listen to David as he speaks. And the king charged Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young, young man Absalom. What did he not call him right there? My son. I know this guy's trying to take my throne away. I know he's taking my wives. I know he set himself up. But we want to, get, we want to regain control. But in the process, just be gentle with that young man who's done this name, 
Absalom. Deal gently with him. Absalom pursued his father, he himself ready to overtake and kill his father. But David relearned compassion. As you read the story in chapter 18, you learn that the woods themselves are killing more men than the soldiers. And as Absalom rides along on the mule that his head is wedged between the oak tree, the scripture says he is hanging between heaven and earth. And a servant sees him and goes and tells Joab, well, I saw Absalom there. Now remember he had a a head of hair like a mane of a lion. He's caught in the tree and he's hanging. And Joab said, well, you killed him, didn't you? He said, well, no, I didn't kill him. I was there when David said, Jill deal gently with the young man Absalom. I dare not touch the anointed son. And Joab said, I have no time for mercy. Joab gets 10 men. They grab their spears and they go. And together they murder the suspended Absalom as he hangs over the earth. The messenger comes to David. I've got some good news. Well, how did things go with the young man Absalom? The Cushite doesn't know better. He says, oh, I hope what happened to him happens to everybody who's an enemy of my king. He knows what that means. And he cries out in verse 33, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. The one who was once called a young man is five times called my son, my son, my son, my son, my son. And we've heard David grieve before, haven't we? Sometimes we've heard David grieve at the death of Saul or Jonathan, and he was eloquent, and he was polished, and he grieved with poetry and class before all the people, but not now. Now it is an elemental mourning. All he can say is, Absalom, my son, Absalom, my son. He is grieving from the deepest part of his heart, and all he can utter is the word Absalom and son over and over again. Joab has no patience for David's grief. Joab's a general. He makes tough choices. He lives in a black and white world. You couldn't do it, king, so I took care of it. And now by loving those who hate you, you're hating those who love you. Would you rather that we all died instead of your enemies? Clean up your face. Wipe off those tears. Get out there on the balcony. Salute the flag and wave to the crowd and cheer on the soldiers who took this for you. This is not the posture for a king. People were stunned in Dallas at Kennedy's death. Somebody had to gather all the photographers and somebody had to set up the public swearing in of Johnson. The state has its abiding demands in times of joy and in times of sorrow. Not too long for grief. Someone has to be the one to say, got to move on. And David obeys him, but not his heart. Look at chapter 19, verse 4. He does it again. Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David found compassion again. The David who had had no compassion for Uriah or Bathsheba had compassion again. 
we respect and even obey the Joabs of the world sometimes, but we're not convinced. Our grief does not fully go away. David cannot choose as easily as Joab does between a son or a throne. Which one do you want? That's tough. Do you want power or grief? It's a hard choice. In the end, power dominates, but sadness will still have its own terrible, unsatiated power. Maybe we're like David too. Maybe in the midst of the suffering that you bring to this house of worship today, maybe we learned humility. Maybe we learned to pray again, to talk earnestly and openly to Yahweh as we'd once talked to him before when we were small and he was so big. And then we got big and we couldn't really talk to him that way anymore. And maybe in the midst of our suffering and pain, we capture compassion again for those who need our blessing, our forgiveness, and even our understanding. Maybe they're throwing rocks at us as we leave the city. And maybe we tell the soldiers, just let them hurl. I hear it in David's voice. I hear it in your voice too. Suffering brokenhearted, a wayward child. It brings us all back to God. Oh, Absalom, Absalom, a wayward son or daughter, what are we ever going to do with you? Let us pray. Oh, God, we come today and we learn from the life of the king. We learn to be a humble people, a praying people, and a compassionate people. Father, I know those watching by way of television or those here in this great sanctuary that they're suffering in our midst. And I pray the comfort of your spirit. And God, we acknowledge openly today that we are the only people who worship a God who, who suffers with us. He doesn't look down from heaven at our suffering and pity, but rather in the form of that Bethlehem baby, he enclosed himself with flesh. His back is bruised and broken. His brow is pierced, and he bleeds. And he suffers not only for us, but with us, that he would know all that your creation must bear. God, I pray this morning, perhaps there's one who's never professed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and this would be her day. This would be his day to come and say, I want Jesus to be my Lord and my King. Maybe there are others who are called to be a part of this congregation. However you would call us, oh God, may we be open to respond. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.